Welcome to Mamlaka Hill Chapel Ruwaka's podcast. Join us as we explore the depths of sin in our new series on the seven deadly sins. We'll be exploring each one of them and with the help of the Holy Spirit, learn how we can be guarded against them. And here's today's message. Good afternoon, Mamlaka. Good afternoon once again. Uh, would you just turn to the person next, seated next to you, give them a high five, tell them David Nyoike says hi. Well, yes, we continue with our series. We've dubbed it the seven deadly sins. I hope you're excited, and I hope that, yeah, I hope you're excited, like literally, and that God is working, a great work in our hearts. Also, now we just walk into the theater room again for the second time to allow the word of God to do what it does best, right? To test our, 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 our thoughts and judge uh, our, our thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And our hope is that we will do what Psalms 26 6 says, that test me and try me, examine my mind and heart. And also we'll go ahead and ask God to do this for us as David prays in Psalms 139 verses 23. Search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. So my prayer is that this will be the attitude of your heart as you continue through this series. But also a disclaimer and just by way of the rules in terms of this engagement with regards to this sermon series is run away from the temptation to listen to this sermon with someone else in, in mind. Think about yourself. Put yourself right there in front of the mirror. And the way you stand on a mirror, appreciate who you are and know that that's who you are. Today we dive into an interesting sin that is well known to us. Drum rolls. Yeah. Envy. Today we go to envy. I hope your heart is excited by hearing that. Uh, so envy is what we're going to tackle today. Envy is that one sin that you've seen, you've tested it, uh, you know how it aches, you know it when it is done to you. Uh, it is likely that you've spotted it in others. And we hate it when someone seems to claim that you have it. To put it in Swahili, we hate it when someone tells you, konawivu. Yeah, because it almost feels petty, right? Envy is presently constant with us, like pride, envy, it camouflages itself in many ways. It gives, up, uh, gives birth to a host of other sins. And also, envy is at the heart of the many land and property disputes that you have in your families. It creeps in into your workplaces where you opt to eliminate or reshuffle certain people because they seem to be a threat to you. It hides behind insincere compliments. We all, all of us, envy is familiar to our hearts because we have all experienced it. We have felt its different flashes and in many varying intensities. So before you discount yourself and claim that unawivu and that you have no recollection of any envy, would you consider these few symptoms that seem to persist in your heart? Here is the first question. Do you complain when your couple friends fly back from their third staycation and wonder, when you guys aren't busy? Because the truly travels too. To us unmarried guys, are you genuinely happy for your friend who gets a girlfriend or a boyfriend after waiting for a while? And are you genuinely happy for that friend uh, who gets engaged? Or do you amplify the flaws of their spouse-to-be and feel like you have been passed or you have been bypassed once again? To parents in the house, are you happy when your friend's child succeeds more than your child? Um, do you burst into joy when they hit their first milestones before your child, or are you envious of them? To those of us who struggled with pride last week, um, in your pride, have you ever considered that 
friend of yours or sibling who can't afford something, and when they buy that car or that house or get that job, you're quick to calculate the impossibilities of them getting that, and you can easily justify that. But is if it was a loans? Hmm? <laughs> yeah? At work, when that inexperienced colleague, at least in your opinion, uh, gets promoted, and they get into some big trouble with the CFO, the CEO of the, of the region, do you laugh in contempt at their misfortune? To the, some of us who love gossip when tea is served and Mohahe goes around, when you receive those gossip reports that so-and-so had a misfortune or probably that ex of yours broke up with the person that you thought were not up to standard or probably the person who joined into business with you or got into your line of business and their business is crashing, do you experience that internal delight and joy that simmers within? And that delight is halted by the report that it wasn't that, it wasn't as worse. It would have been, if it would have been worse, you would actually have thrown a bash for yourself in celebration for that. Or you justify yourself with the underdowns of, I told you, I knew it. Among your friends, real group members, do you mama and complain when God answers speedily and generously to the prayers you made for them in their hour of need? And when you listen to their testimony, do you praise God or wonder, God, why that fast? How will he learn to be how will, he, how will he learn to patiently wait on you? How will God, God teach them patience? Don't answer that first. Does it ache deep down when your friend is complimented for a great job done before your eyes? And for some of us in the workplace, when your colleague succeeds and is given that end of year employee award, do you garnish your compliments with a bat, quickly pointing out their weaknesses and flaws and why they aren't all that? Do you gossip about their weaknesses? displaying your resentment and displeasure. Are you their biggest fan or their greatest critic? Now, if this is you, breaking news, envy lies within your heart. And this is why. Envy is everywhere in, the, in our world. Envy is everywhere. Our world today gives us many opportunities to dip ourselves into this sin. And this is because, firstly, we have inequalities, right? Inequalities do abound. We are not always all in the same level. Someone will be prettier than you. Someone will have money, more money than you. Someone will actually get a better job than, than you. But also something else about our culture, we live in a culture that embraces self-display, where we post Instagram reels, hashtag blessed, hashtag couple goals, where we travel and we add that Mwaikibaki's voice, Sivizuri Mali Pamoja, right? We also have Facebook posts that captures the benefits and the perks um, of your status, not forgetting your stellar achievements, that come with you being in that LinkedIn profile saying, this is my new title. All at once through social media, we see our high school friends, you see that college campus friend who actually copied your notes, who actually didn't even attend, 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 didn't even attend class. See, see, you see them progress all along. In that, you see who is progressing, you see who went for a vacation, you actually see where they went to. You actually see their award they got. You actually even see the new job that they have. And for some of us who are usually curious and envious, you go to Glassdoor or Payscale and search their title and get to see where they earn on top of that. We see the who goes to speak in an international conference. And as we do that, we scroll ourselves through social media into envy and set ourselves into that comparison game that never ends. Now... That is envy for you. But now how best would we define it? What is envy? Envy, it is the sinful inclination of the human heart to be resentful 
of the possessions, advantages, achievements, and traits of others. It is the sinful inclination of the human heart to be resentful of the possessions, advantages, achievements, and traits of others. This is what envy does. Envy is unhappy at the blessings of others. It is unhappy at the blessings of others. It is the uneasiness when you meet that friend of yours who has gotten that new job or has that new car. There's a uneasiness that makes that conversation quite awkward. Envy shows itself and, and those who possess it experience a painful awareness at an advantage enjoyed by others. It shows itself when we receive good reports and bad reports. When we receive good reports, our natural inclination is to celebrate, right? And when we receive bad reports, our natural inclination should be to actually mourn. But envy gets the opposite. When you receive good news, you are sad. How did you get that job? Why you? But when you receive bad news, instead of being sorry for that person, you burst into joy. That is what envy does. It is often easy to view envy and jealousy together or interchangeably, however they are different. Jealousy is different from envy because jealousy is focused on what you possess and it seeks to protect it. However, envy, on the other hand, it focuses on the possessions of others and resents the person enjoying the possession. Envy is never general. You can't say that I envy you generally. Envy is extremely specific. It's extremely, it knows what it wants, why it wants it, and it seeks to do whatever it takes to get it. Nothing gives the envious person much joy than the failure of others. You wait for the scrpa of a friend, and there you experience much joy. But also envy is linked to pride. And in that whole, when envy is laced with pride, this is what envy says. It says, I want the best. Actually, I am the best. They don't deserve what they have. And so, I become envious of anyone getting better. For us who are pro-justice, if you really, really love justice, envy also disguises itself as justice. It says, you don't deserve that promotion. You actually don't deserve that house. Actually, you ain't gifted as you think. It's not fair. In dating relationships after a breakup, envy finds comfort in ill wishes as it hopes for the other person, saying, the streets of Kainairo are hard. Just a matter of time. As Wills has it, uh, uh, William Haslight rightly put it, he says, envy among many other ingredients has a love for justice in it. The envious person does this, he rationalizes his or her joy at the misfortunes of others with subtle, subtle comments saying, Malipo ni hapa hapa? Duniani. And when that happens, the envious, the envious person bursts into song, Walio kudarao? Envy compared to other sins, pride pounces upon its, its prey. Lust pounces upon its prey. Slothfulness does, takes its, its cause. But if there is a particular sin that is a, spine, a sniper kind of sin, it is envy. Envy is a sniper kind of sin. It's never in the open, as you'll see later in, in, in what we're going to look at. Envy calculates in secret places. It goes ahead and recruits malice and anger, and it fights to get what it needs. And if not, it seeks to eliminate the person enjoying it. It may start by saying, you know, I just like your job, you know. I like your car. But again, it goes to competing with the model. I really want to get that car, so I'll work extra hard to get it. But when it can't, 
envy escalates to desire to eliminate the person who enjoys that gift. But now here are two questions that envy asks. Firstly, envy asks this question, why not me? With regards to the possessions of others and the blessings of others, envy asks, why not me? And in that is pride that says, I deserved it. I actually worked harder. I am the one who wakes up early. I get here at 6 a.m. You guys come at 9. But the person who comes at night gets the promotion. But also it asks the question, why you? In this envy says, you don't deserve it. Actually, life shouldn't be that easy for you. Actually, you didn't put much of your work into it. A guy called Joe Rigney uh, quotes Brian Hedges saying, Envy displays itself in these four ways, which, which are paramount to, to our reflection today. It has a corrupted desire, firstly. It has a perverse comparison of oneself and others. Thirdly, also, it has an ungodly preoccupation with the achievement of others. And fourthly, envy has simmering anger at the blessings of others. A guy called Jonathan Edwards says this about envy. Envy is a spirit of dissatisfaction or opposition to the prosperity or the happiness of others. But before we get to know what the Bible says about it, we have to ask this question, but who are the potential candidates of, of our envy? You have to ask, who are the, the guys who get to experience our envy? Firstly, those who experience or are potential candidates of our envy are those who are on your level and close to you. It's quite interesting that what pride, pride does to us, pride causes us to know our league, right? We categorize ourselves that there are those who are on these lanes, we are on the expressway, others are on two homes and pathways right there. Yeah? It's rather unlikely that you would be envious of the richest man in the world. You, would, you, know, you know that this is your league. You would, you would not find yourself being envious of Warren Buffett because of his billions, billion dollars that he has. But in that whole space, we are envious of those who are on our league. Those that you know, this person to go the same lane. You are okay when they rise to your level. But when they surpass your level, pride, not pride, envy kicks in and asks, why you? Secondly also, other potentials of our envy are those below us. Because in our pride we know that we've gotten ahead of them, we know that we are beautiful, we are intelligent, we actually have our second, third, fourth degree, actually we have a six, seven, or seven-digit kind of uh, salary. And we, in our pride, we say they don't deserve to catch up with us. And when they come and catch up and surpass our expectations, and you wonder that person who was, as you had placed him, you had placed him on the lower middle class, they rise to the middle middle class, and you are on the middle lower class, you wonder, how now? How fast? And you become envious of them. But also, lastly, those who are candidates of our envy are those who take the places of honor that we so desire. That person in the office who you're applying for this promotion, you really want to have it, there's an, op there's an opening, and your, your next colleague, the just next door office bit, who you don't consider as diligent gets that promotion. You wonder why them. The question here is, what does the Bible say about envy? What does God say about envy? We find envy in the very early passages of Scripture. Firstly, we see it in Genesis 4, 2 to 8. The first children to ever be born, to ever be, to be, ever be born displayed this thing called envy. Let's just stand there in Genesis 4, 2 to 8. We find the story of Cain and Abel. These are the first children to ever be born. So they, pretty much we, we can say that the first human beings who are not part of the created order. They have been 
given birth by uh, Adam and Eve. This is what it says in Genesis 4, 2 to 8. It says, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor, not that, this is the Lord who looked with favor on Abel and his offspring, but on Cain and his, his offering, sorry, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And then it says, verses 8, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And notice what happens. Cain was the firstborn. He ends up killing his baby brother. Notice the privilege that Abel enjoys is not something that he gave himself. God looked down with favor to him. There was, no op- there was no opportunity for Abel to reverse that whole situation. There was no opportunity for him to say, you know what, God, please hold back your blessings. Don't look down on favor to me because of any reason. God did this. But what we see, what follows next is that Cain experiences this envy and see how things degenerate so fast. This is He's actually blood and only brother at this particular point. And what we see here is that Cain goes ahead and he's warned by God. He says, why are you angry if you do what is right? There was an opportunity for him to do what was right. But again, because he saw what Abel had, Abel, not Abel, Abel had, and he felt, you are the object of my envy. You have received favor from the Lord. I have not received it. What I will do is, see how it plots. He says, let's go, to the, let's go to the field. He isolates Abel, takes him to the, to the field, and kills him. And before we go ahead of us and probably detach ourselves from this story, firstborns in the house, how would it be if your sibling succeeded you more, succeeded more than you, or especially if they were to get ahead of you? Yet you're the one who actually have been supporting them. You've seen, you expect that you are to get things fast. And yet, your follower surpasses you. We see that at the heart of the very first murder in the Bible is envy. And we see also something else about Cain's attitude towards God because envy has a twisted and corrupt view of justice and God's sovereignty. Envy says this to God. It says, Envy views God this way. It says, God, you are an unjust, an unfair master and judge, dishing out your good, perfect gifts of jobs, houses, and privileges and advantages to young and deserving and inexperienced individuals. And by passing me, or you in this case, you who is the most deserving of these good gifts. What envy does, envy faults God and attacks the person blessed just as Cain killed Abel. And on top of that, envy does doubt God's goodness and fails to recognize it's wrong and to do what is right. So we see Cain getting an opportunity, but all that leading him to what? To death. Here are a couple of verses for us just to consider. Let's turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 14. 
verse 30, this is, what the, this is what the writer of Proverbs says. He says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. See that kind of image that he says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but what envy does, envy rots the, bo- the bones. This is a very powerful imagery because while other sins seem to enjoy some temporal joys, when you are proud, people will know that you are proud and they will respect you. When you are a slothful, you will sleep. Enjoy your sleep and your nap. You will have some good time. When you are gluttonous, you will feed thy appetites with all that you want. When you are angry, you will lash out with joy, commanding your authority on others. When you are lustful, you will enjoy thy pleasures. But with envy, there is no fun at all. Envy eats you up within. It consumes you day in, day out. And God says, it's either choose to kill your envy, for if, if not, if you don't kill it, it will eat up your body, experiencing the rot of your bones, and therefore lose your stability, but also eat up your soul. In Proverbs 3.31, this is what it says, do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. In Proverbs 23.17, it says, do not let your heart envy who? Sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Just reading that, it's quite interesting that one of the things that also plagues the Christian with his relationship with sinners is that the situation of sinners can cause us to be envious of them. Asaph, a worshiper, in Psalm 73 says this and laments about this. He says, but as for me, in Psalm 73 too, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Asaph was a great musician, someone serving in the house of God, writing and penning great psalms to the glory of God, one thing seems to cause him to lose his sleep, or rather causes him not to have a foothold, or to nearly lose his foothold. This is what he says in verses 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they are free from common human burdens, they are not plagued by human ills, Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Verses 12, this is what verses 12 says. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. And therefore, for you as a Christian, when you, do, when you look at, at, at the people in the world, they seem to be thriving. Envy plants into your heart a corruption. And therefore, envy plants and corrupts the heart of those faithfully practice obedience to God by causing them to doubt the goodness of God. And sometimes cause us to consider how best we can live, it, live in our world. And because us and causes the Christian to ask this particular question, is it even worth it to deal rightly with God in my dealings if this is the outcome? If those in the world seem to be thriving, is it really, really worth it for me to work diligently to the glory of God? In Ecclesiastes 4.4, this is what the, the, the teacher says. He says, And I saw all the toil and all the achievements spring from one's person envy, of another, this too is meaningless. Are chasing after the wind. It's interesting that the, 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 the writer of, of, of the teacher says this. He acknowledges that your effort to try and match up with other people, your effort to try and compare and compete and get into that competitive and comparative rat race, is just but a chasing after the wind. And it pretty much seems to show us that even in our works, there are things that we can toil and do all in a bid to achieve them because you are envious of others. In contrast, in contrasting the wisdom that comes from God and that which is earthly, this is what James says about what is unspiritual in James 3.16. He says, for where you have envy 
and selfish ambition, there you will find what? Disorder and every evil practice. It's as if envy out of it, it bats to another myriad of other sins as we'll see. Envy is never alone. It recruits other sins. It gets anger and malice and rivalry to achieve its sole goal. As we learned last week, when Christ is listing what flows from the heart and what defiles a man, envy and pride is part of this, that list. When Paul is listing this, the, 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 the sins that are worthy of God's wrath in Romans 1, 29, he says, they have become filled with every kind of weakness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. In Paul's list, whatever is worthy of God's wrath, envy is right there. And therefore, as Paul instructs the Galatian church in Galatians 5, 19, 21, it's what he says, the acts of the flesh are what? Obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, decisions, factions, and what? Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He says, I warn you, this is the church of Galatians, and I did before, that those who live like this will not do what? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envy, to the envious God says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God you are not worthy of heaven. All you deserve is what? Nothing but wrath. But again, let's look at two stories here. How envy took its stage in the hearts of men. Let's turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 37, right there. And just a warning as you start, if you, as you read that, this, this, this story, please run away from the temptation to look at, to look at yourself as Joseph. Uh, yeah. Remove yourself from being the hero in the story. View yourself as the 11 brothers right here, the 10 brothers. This is what it says in Genesis 37. It says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. He brought their father a bad report about them. Again, this is like a snitch. You see the way, yeah, if you've had siblings who are snitch, they snitch on you, you know how it feels. Um, it goes ahead to say, now Israel, this is, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he had been born to him in, in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Verses 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, what did they do? They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Verses 5, Joseph had a dream, again, just a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, what is their reaction? They hated him all the more. Verses 6, he said to them, listen to this dream. I had, we were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when, we, when suddenly my, my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Verses 8, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? Now that behind that question is, why are you having this dream? Why not us? Right? And then it says, and they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he has said. So they hate him because he's loved by his father and gets a quote. They hate him because he gets a dream. And some of you guys can go and share your business ideas with your families, with your friends. And all of a sudden, in that particular moment, you wonder, why are the conversations not working? This is pretty much what is happening here. And then verses 9, then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to him. This is, to me, this is like now a second confirmation of the first dream, that this is actually going to happen. Then verses 10, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I 
and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you. Verses 11 says this, his brothers, um, sorry, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. This is a family, like any other family. Kids are there. Joseph is loved by, 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 by the dad. He actually gets an ornamented robe. We don't, we don't know that, but I think Sunday school points a picture that it was colorful and all those things. We don't know what it was made of, but it's ornamented. It's a really, really good coat. He gets it. He's also loved by the father, but also he gets this dream. And like any of us, if you get a dream and you're excited, what happens? You share it to the people who are close to you. He goes ahead and shares it with, with his uh, brothers. But look at how this thing stri- this how envy seems to strike and how everything progresses. The brothers hate him three times. We see that in verses 4, 5, and 8. They envy him because of his position of being loved um, by his dad. They envy him because of the courts. They also envy him because of the position that he seems to take. But see how fast this story um, goes forth. In verses uh, 17, Israel sends Joseph to go and look for his brothers, and he looks for them and finds them in Dothan. And this is what happens from verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, what happens? They plotted to kill him. This is way after. They have hated him, but at the best available convenience, when they see him come, one thing comes to their mind. Not even to beat him, not even to slander him, not even to gossip about him. They plot to kill him. And they say, here comes the dreamer. They say to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. His brothers are like, we're going to kill you. That dream that you have, end of story today. They even have, they even plotted an alibi of what they're going to tell their father, that there was a ferocious animal that did what? Devoured him. We know how that story ends. Reuben comes, intervenes, and they don't really kill him. But what happens? They actually sell him, but still apply this ferocious animal thingy. They take the coat, kill an animal, dip it into dal, and take it to their... Their father, anyway, the brother actually is sold. They hope he's far from us. This is just but a dream. This story shows us that envy is close by. These were his blood brothers. Yet, in a very, very short time, they had schemed, they had planned, they had sought out to do one thing, to kill him. To them, they were like, we will kill so that he will not enjoy the father's love more than us. He will not even wear that ornamental robe that he has, but even much more, he will not see his dreams come true. Before you think yourself highly and think that you're the Joseph in this story, you are these brothers. Consider to think about your thoughts. How often have you skimmed in thought or even to some extent in deed because of your acts of envy? How often, and in our families, this one is true, whereby a certain person gets an inheritance, the dad has given an inheritance, he has actually given you a part but you are dissatisfied that your brother got bigger than you and therefore you put court injunctions Lands have not been sorted out, case upon case, families are fighting. Not because the dad was not clear about what he wanted to do, but because of envious hearts that come. Secondly, you want to see another king. Let's turn to um, 1 Samuel chapter 18. We find Saul. Saul here, he's a king in, in 1 Samuel chapter 18. 
Just to go before that, in chapter 15, Saul was told to go and kill the Amalekites. He doesn't kill the Amalekites. He goes ahead and spares King Agag and what, is, uh, what was seemed to be pleasing to his eyes. And he says, I've done the job. And God decides to do what? To reject him. And therefore, what happens later on is that in chapter 17, we find the full drama of the guy called David and Goliath. We see Goliath defying the name of the armies of Israel in the name of God for 40 days. And David walks into that center stage. He actually finds his way, meets Saul. He's given the helmet to wear, but it feels like he's heavy. He actually goes and tells Saul, you know, I've killed a bear, I've killed a lion. Let's go. I'm going to kill this guy. He uses a sling and a stone. And what happens? Goliath dies. And he cuts Goliath's, Goliath's head with the sword that he had. And, and, and people celebrate. And this is what happens. This is the setting that we find in, in chapter 18. So let's just read what happens there. We see from verses 1, it says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. So also as you look at this story, have these two people as you construct, con- contrast them. Look at Jonathan and have Saul in mind in that particular space. It says, from that day, after, after David had finished sorry, talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From verses 2, it says, From the, that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. So Saul here identifies himself with, with, with the achievements of David. He says, you know, you have done a good job. Actually, baby, don't go back to your village. Don't go, back to, don't go back to Bethlehem. Come, I want to stay with you. And the intentions there, right? He is happy. He sees this future with David in this particular space. Verses 3 says, And Jonathan made a covenant with who? With David, because he loved him as himself. Verses 4, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his, his, bow and his, his bow and his belt. We see Jonathan honoring David. He goes ahead and says, this is amazing. I'm going to honor you in this particular space. Verses 5, whatever Saul sent him to do, we see now David working for Saul in this particular sense. David did it so successfully that even Saul gave him a high rank in the army. So we see Saul, David rising from being a shepherd boy at 17, and he gets to become a high-ranking Officer. So it's like a job is created and you can wonder about the people who are looking for promotions or probably the person who was fired in that particular space and a 17-year-old walks in and is now calling the shots because he just killed one guy. Um, well, you guys have been fighting the Philistines for a while and you have a 40-year experience in that, in that regard. Then what we see next is that when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, with singing and dancing. So you can imagine the shouts and praise with joyful songs and with tambourines, even have instruments and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David has, David his tens of thousands. See Saul's reaction. Saul was very angry. This refrain gailed him. And this is what he said. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me, the king, with only thousands, what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on who? On David. See how that story goes? This one song, Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands, was like a hit, a song hit that has come. In those times, what ladies would do, they would 
after victory, they would wait for you at the city gate. So picture all the ladies of towns of Israel standing and waiting for King Saul. And they make shouts and praise. uh, Saul has killed thousands. And David, his tens of thousands. And King Saul wonders. And probably this is how we would put it in in our current context. Sasa surely, just one battle na... One battle likitu ya kuimbiwa na kuimbiwa nyimbo na ladies. One battle surely likitu ya kuimbiwa na wanawake yani. Yeah, he says he thought, I mean, why are they crediting David tens of thousands? And he goes to that comparison trap and asks, how how is David better than me? Just the other day I was trying to fit the guy with a helmet and my armor. Just the other day now he's getting praise and accolades. And therefore, this is what happens. Envy seeps in from that time. And we see the next day, what happens the next immediate day. The next day, verses 10, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he held it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. We see that whole theme of envy and killing still continuing right here. Verse 12 says, Saul was afraid of David because the, because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him commands over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. It's so interesting that King David was now in charge of the armies, but now he is more or less kind of demoted to have only a thousand men because that's what Saul thinks that he has. David has killed thousands and Saul has killed tens of thousands. So he pretty much makes that clear to him. And then verses 14 it says, In everything he did, again God is with, with David. He had great success because the Lord was with him. Verses 15, When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved him because he led them in their campaigns. Seven, verses 17, also we see a very interesting thing. We see him having uh, this daughter Merab, and it says, verse 17, Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merab, I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. He looks like a very enterprising father-in-law willing to see the, the benefits of the son-in-law. But notice the motive. He says, for Saul said to him, self, I will not raise a hand against him. I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. He actually says, I want to kill you, but I won't kill you. Yeah, I will put you in a circumstance that probably as you fight for the Lord's army, you might just as well end up in death. But the other thing happens, that marriage doesn't work because again, David seems to say, it's such a huge thing for me to be uh, the son-in-law to the king. And therefore we see Michal falling in love with David in verses 20. It says, now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. He says, I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare. Look at the tactfulness and the strategy that goes with this. I'll give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second chance or a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then we see, again, a very enterprising envy schemes. It calculates. Saul sends guys to go and to speak privately to David. And this is what they are saying in verses 22. Look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. Now become his son, his son-in-law. So there is a lot of enticing, like a lot of, I want you to become my son-in-law. But this is the interesting that happens in verses, um, verses 23. They repeat these words to David. But David said, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor man and little known. 
Verse 24 says, when Saul's servants told him what David, what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other prize for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. The whole idea of it calling out and requesting for that bride price is this. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. See how envy calculates that even Saul places his daughter on the line to achieve his arterial motives. But as the story would end, David goes ahead and surpasses that dowry prize. He actually pays it double, which was not an easy task to do. And when that happens in verses 28, this is what Saul says. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. From that on, a very simple, subtle song sung by women leads to a lifelong pursuit of envy, hopefully planning to exterminate who? David. And this does not stop there. In chapter 22, and probably I can ask you to go ahead and read this story later on, David flees to Nob, and Saul finds a guy called Doeg there. And Doeg, by the instruction of Saul, goes ahead and kills the high priests. Envy does not stop. at The, the collateral damage is a non-issue. Envy goes ahead and pursues the other person with the hope of exterminating them. But also notice something very, very interesting. Jonathan all through, Jonathan was the firstborn of Saul. He was the rightful heir of the kingdom. If Saul dropped dead, the next beneficiary would have been who? Jonathan. But from the get-go, what does Jonathan do? Jonathan honors David. Jonathan loves David. Jonathan is actually goes to the extent of warning him, and even in one of their suppers at some point, Jonathan seems to be pinned by Saul, by Saul throwing a spear and wondering, what kind of a guy are you? I'm actually doing this so that you can actually benefit. And yet, Jonathan, his love and his friendship for David proves more stronger than envy, and it proves more stronger than selfish ambition. Brothers and sisters, envy consumes, and it finds no satisfaction until it, it, it experiences or witnesses the downfall of another. Envy leads Abel to death. Envy leads Joseph to Egypt. Envy leads Jesus to the cross. And envy leads Saul to pursue David. At the heart of envy is an intention to see the downfall of someone else. And therefore, when envy knocks, we have two options. To either celebrate the blessings of God on others in honoring them and celebrating them like Jonathan, or to be like King Saul and let envy consume us, for envy leads to nothing less but death. It seeks to see that the other person will not advance in what God has given them to do. But now, how then do we kill envy? Here are four points for us to reflect on. Firstly, we kill envy by confessing. We kill envy by craving the spiritual milk of God's word. We kill envy by embracing love. And finally, we kill envy by embracing contentment. On the first point, we have to acknowledge that we are envious. We must come in submission to Christ who was delivered to the cross by this particular sin and acknowledge that on that cross, he died because of it that you and I would actually find true freedom from it. Secondly, we have to crave the spiritual milk of God's word daily, and thus tasting that the Lord is good. And this is why, this is what 1 Peter 2, 1, 3 says, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, 
And then it says, as you read that, uh, as you read, put that away and you read yourself of that, put this on, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual mix so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, envy brings selective blindness. It blinds you that God has not been good enough to you and therefore you resent the blessings of others and fault God. As you read God's word, you find ways to actually kill envy because in God's word you realize that God is good and he apportions his gifts rightly and justly. Thirdly, embrace love. In the, in the passage, 1 Corinthians 13, we see this particular text that says, love does not envy. A heart that genuinely loves never envies. Scripture calls us to love our neighbor as yourself. Once you have gotten that achievement, you expect someone to actually celebrate you. And that which you want others to do to you, do it to others. How practically can you live out this promise or this command? Thank God for the person you envy. Thank God for, for them. Thank God that they got that job. Thank God that they had such a wedding. Thank God that they, they are living in such a neighborhood. Thank God that they are progressing in the way that they are progressing. But also, what that does as you thank God and pray for them, prayer trains and orients your heart to love as God desires. It, it trains you to actually rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to mourn with those who are mourning. And how best can you potentially kill pride even before it comes up? Pray for those you'd potentially be envious of. As you walk into that room and you get to know that your friend has moved and you get to their house and you look at the curtains and they tell you the rent that they are paying and you are, you are there stupefied wondering whether that's okay or even it's, if, it's more, if it's normal. Pray for their, their well-being. Pray for them. Pray for their prosperity. Pray that they would enjoy the gifts that God has given them. Serve them and honor them like Jonathan, Jonathan, willing to see them prosper, widening, widening their influences to the glory of God. Choose to be on the Lord's side, serving the causes of his sovereign will upon his good people. And finally, embrace contentment. Embrace contentment. Behind every comparison trap lies the furnace. Without, behind every, every envy lies the furnace and the oxygen of comparison. Embrace contentment, which is great gain. Enjoy the gifts and the opportunities accorded to you now. Refrain from the temptation to measure yourself through a false standard. Resist the compulsive urge to compete with everyone under the sun. And while you do it, rejoice in the Lord. For he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. May the Lord bless you all.